Welcome to Lincoln Log, where we speak with leading historians and other officials about their stories, research, and wisdom. Expand your knowledge and indulge your curiosity here on Lincoln Log. This podcast is produced by the Abraham Lincoln Association, aiding and promoting Abraham Lincoln's life and legacy. Founded in 1908, the ALA remains the nation's oldest and largest Lincoln organization. Learn more at abrahamlincolnassociation.org. Greetings. I am your host, Joshua Claiborne, and I am pleased to welcome John White to our Lincoln Log podcast. John is a professor of American studies at Christopher Newport University. He is the author or editor of 13 books and more than 100 articles, essays, and reviews about the Civil War, including several prominent award-winning books. His newest book is A House Built by Slaves, African-American Visitors to the Lincoln White House, which is published by Roman and Littlefield, and a recent one shortly before that, um, an edited volume of Lincoln's letters titled To Address You as My Friend, African-Americans' Letters to Abraham Lincoln, published by the University of North Carolina Press. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, I view your newest book and the one before that as really good companions that go together well, will make a good holiday gift, um, encourage folks to purchase it for that reason. But before we delve too much into those, I'd like to touch a little bit on your background and really what interested you in history and then in particular Lincoln's history and scholarship. I was born actually in a house from the 1720s just outside of Philadelphia, and it was an old farmhouse that was built up in the 19th century. And when I was a kid, I actually found the old trash pit in the woods out in the back and digging up old artifacts and having that sort of material of history in my hands is what I think really birthed an interest in history for me. When I went to college, though, I started as a business major because I wanted to make a lot of money and I still would like to make a lot of money. But as a freshman, I took a, a large history lecture class, and it just really persuaded me that this is what I wanted to do. And so I switched from business to history and never looked back. I went to Penn State, and I had the really good fortune to study under some great Civil War scholars. And one of them was Mark Neely, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning Lincoln scholar. And that really began to birth my interest in Abraham Lincoln. And then Mark encouraged me to go to the University of Maryland for graduate school, where I worked with Herman Bells and Ira Berlin. And so Herman Bells is another great Lincoln scholar. And I think it was really working under Mark and Herman that led me into the Lincoln field. I didn't start that way, but having good mentors brought me into the field. Well, we started our uh, higher education uh, path in the similar path. I started a business and always looked back with regret. I didn't do history. So uh, kudos to you for uh, switching over. Nothing against folks who are also business majors, but uh, wish I had the foresight to do that as well. Of course, I got into history a lot later in, in law school and, and otherwise, so eventually got there. But, um, you know, a lot of folks who listen to this are drawn to this podcast because they like Lincoln, because they like history. Um, but But how do we entice or tell folks who don't have as much of an interest in Lincoln, why he matters and why they need to study him and understand Lincoln? That's a question I think about every day. And when I teach my classes, most of my students take my courses as general education credits. They're bio majors or psychology or business majors. They're taking my class because they have to, not necessarily because they want to. And 
I try to use my teaching as a way to show them the relevance of what I have to, to show them, to teach them. I use a lot of Lincoln in my classes, and I found that the questions that Lincoln was grappling with, while he was in a different time and a different place, really in a different world than we're in today, they're still really quite relevant to us. So Lincoln was dealing with issues related to race. And obviously we as an American people, as a nation today are still grappling with questions related to race. Or even things like free speech or free press. I teach Lincoln's Cooper Union address in one of my classes. And in that speech, Lincoln speaks directly to Southerners, white Southerners, and he calls on them to engage in civil dialogue and debate, not to shut them down or just call names and end political debate that way, but to actually engage and listen and, and maybe change minds. And I think that's a really relevant point that we still need to be thinking about as a people today, or when I teach Lincoln's second inaugural address. Lincoln could have gone into that speech and said, you know, we did it. We're about to win. The war is almost over. They were bad. We were good. Let's punish the bad guys. And I think if he had done that, many Northerners would have cheered and rejoiced. But instead, Lincoln talks about how the North was complicit in the sin of slavery mm -hmm. and how people needed to look at their own guilt before blaming the others. And if you can look at yourself and realize that you're not perfect, it makes it easier for you to forgive your enemy. And so then he has that beautiful closing about with malice toward none and with charity for all. And so even though Lincoln was in a different time and dealing with different issues, there are principles that, that Lincoln speaks to that I think are really still relevant for our time. And, and maybe if we as a people listened more, we would be in a better place than we are. Right. And, you know, one of the most prominent uh, modern conversations that comes up is the 1619 project. So I, I can't think we could ignore that, but it's not just that there's recent police protests. There's just for generations ongoing national conversations about race. It seems like we're starting to reassess Lincoln a little bit. Um, do you see that happening? And, and should there be a reassessment? How, how would you as view this ongoing conversation about Lincoln's role in these racial conversations? Yeah, I think every generation reassesses Lincoln, just as every generation of historians reassesses most events in the past. And Lincoln, his reputation ebbs and flows. Different times and different people look at him, uh, some more favorably than others. My hope in the work that I'm doing is, is to recover certain aspects of Lincoln's life and legacy that have really been obscured for so long. In, in the last 60 or so years, I think Lincoln's role in emancipation has come under a lot of scrutiny. And many people see Lincoln as nothing but a reluctant emancipator or maybe not even you know, you know having his heart in it or wanting to free the slaves. And what I hope to do in these two books, showing the letters that Black Americans sent to Lincoln and then discussing the interactions that African Americans had with Lincoln, is to recover the really incredible relationship that developed between Lincoln and African Americans during the war. And I think that in recovering that relationship, it can help us view him in a new light and, and appreciate some of the things that he did during the war that I'm not sure he always gets credit for. Right. Right. Well, one of the one of the big uh, events, I guess you could say, that that kicked off some of these reassessments and the criticism is an infamous meeting in 1862. Um, 
where Lincoln discusses colonization, suggesting that uh, blacks in America could could be sent back to Africa and, and colonized there. Um, what led to Lincoln's comments there and how are uh, historians getting um, that that meeting and the, that discussion wrong or perhaps framing it incorrectly or maybe it's being correctly framed nowadays how would you describe that situation yeah this is a meeting in august of 1862 that's on the one hand one of the most remarkable moments of lincoln's presidency because it's the first time in the history of the country that a sitting president has invited a black delegation to the white house to talk politics on the other hand, it's, I think, one of the most unfortunate moments in American in, of Lincoln's presidency because he lectures them on why Black people are the cause of the war and why they should lead their people out of the country. He says, you'll never be equal here in the United States, so why don't you go to Panama? I'll do what I can to make you equal there. And he says, if Black people weren't here, white men wouldn't be cutting each other's throats. Yeah. Now, some people take this meeting and hold it up as exemplary of this is how Lincoln treated African-Americans. Other people look at this meeting and, and say, well, it, it's not as condescending or as negative as, as it might appear. And um, I disagree with both of those views. I, I think on the one hand, it is not at all exemplary of how Lincoln treated Black people. And on the other hand, though, it is an unfortunate, I, I think it is an unfortunate uh, depiction of, of or interaction with with black leaders of Washington. But what I try to do in the book, and I'm not the first person to do this, but what I try to do in the book is to explain why did Lincoln do what he did. Right. So this is what I think was going on. The summer of 1862, Lincoln issues or decides he needs to issue an emancipation proclamation as the best way to win the war. The problem he runs into is that the war is going very badly in the Eastern theater. And so his secretary of state, William Seward, persuades him, wait until we win a major victory on the battlefield and then issue the Emancipation Proclamation. That way it won't look like a sign of weakness to the rest of the world. And Lincoln listens to that and decides that that's very good advice. The problem is Lincoln has to wait until Antietam in September of 1862 to finally claim a victory and be able to issue his Emancipation Proclamation. So while he's waiting, Lincoln takes certain PR steps to try to prepare the Northern electorate for what he already knows is coming, which is an Emancipation Proclamation. So Lincoln writes his very famous letter to Horace Greeley, where he says, my paramount object in this war is to save the Union and is not to either save or to destroy slavery. People today take that and say, oh, see, Lincoln didn't really care about freeing the slaves. He only cared about the Union. Well, no, Lincoln was saying to the white Northern electorate, if you really believe in saving the Union, you will, you will be open to the idea of freeing the slaves. Around the same time, Lincoln calls this Black delegation to the White House and lectures them on why they should leave the country through colonization and take the Black population with them. Now, Lincoln had a stenographer in the room, someone who could write down pretty much everything he said and then broadcast it to the nation. Well, why would he do that? Well, Lincoln wants white Northern voters to see, okay, if emancipation comes then maybe colonization can be paired with it and you don't need to be as upset about emancipation. Lincoln was saying to white voters, again, prepare yourself for what is coming. I'll do what I can to soften the blow, but 
emancipation's on the horizon and you should be willing to support it. Now, I think Lincoln knew that there was no way you could get 4 million enslaved people to emigrate and leave the country. He knew that colonization wasn't going to happen, but this was a political strategy that he had. And what's really interesting is a few weeks later, Lincoln appears to have brought a Black minister to the White House, a man named Henry McNeil Turner. And we know about this because Turner wrote about it for the Christian Recorder newspaper. And what Turner indicated was that Lincoln seems to have said, I needed a place to point to with this colonization thing. In other words, when, when you go see a magician, a magician uses a tactic called misdirection. And it goes like this. Look over here, get distracted over here while I'm doing something here, and then voila, you're going to see this great magic right. trick. And I think what Turner reveals to us is that Lincoln was essentially misdirecting the American public. Look over here at colonization while I'm going to do emancipation over here. You get distracted by that while I do the real thing. And what's incredible about Lincoln telling this to Turner is that Lincoln almost never shared his innermost feelings or thoughts with anyone. William Herndon called Lincoln the most shut mouth man I ever knew. And yet Lincoln brought a black man into the White House and explained his deeper strategy. And then right. Turner let the black population of Philadelphia know that through the Christian recorder. Now, this doesn't absolve Lincoln for speaking condescendingly or for promoting colonization. I'm not justifying Lincoln in any of those things. But it does help us at least understand and explain what he was doing, which is very different than just saying, oh, Lincoln called people into the White House and told them to get out of the country. Right. There was a lot more going on than that. Well, you do such a good job of, of letting the history uh, lead you where it goes. And you don't go in with an agenda, I think, to get to a certain point. And I, unfortunately, I see, and I'm sure you do as well, a lot of historians who go in with an agenda because there's a story or an angle they want to present. And I think uh, this book really highlights your ability to read the documentation, look at the context clues and present it for what it is. And um, personally, that's what I look for in a history book. And, and that's one of the many things I really admire and like about a house built by slaves. Um, Thank you. I, yeah. I started these two books. I started these two books as one. I wanted to call it emphatically the black man's president, African-American correspondence and conversations with Abraham Lincoln. And the idea was to include all the letters that I could find from black men and women to Lincoln and then have firsthand accounts written by African-Americans of their interactions with Lincoln and have it be all primary sources because I really wanted to capture their voices. Right. I very quickly realized I had too much for one book. And so I broke it into two. I got a twofer out of it. But that's why I think the Black voices still come through very strongly in a house built by slaves. I wanted to be wedded to their accounts of meeting Lincoln. Um, you know, I think, um, although I understand certainly why you'd want it in one book, I think that's kind of nice to have for one is the original source material and another that's a real nice presentation and or again for those folks looking for a good christmas gift there's a there's a two for you can get you can make your own box set out of it that's right there you go um you and scott sandage joined us on this podcast earlier to chat about really a remarkable discovery of a frederick Douglass letter about the freedmen's memorial in washington in 2020 and at the time this was at the height of some of the police protests, some of the racial uh, protests as well that were going on. Um, and that memorial, as many others throughout the country, came under scrutiny. Um, can you summarize what that 
letter said and how it really influenced the fate of Freedmen's Memorial in Washington. Yeah, it was a really incredible moment. It was June of, eight, of 2020. It was right in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, and there's protests all over the country, and some of them are centered on this very controversial Lincoln statue in D.C., and you and I serve on a board with Scott, the Abraham Lincoln Institute, and I remember as if it was yesterday where we were having an email discussion among the board members over, do we take a public position on the removal of the statue? And Scott and I ended up in a text message conversation on a Friday night, and he said, you know, Frederick Douglass didn't like the statue. And I wrote back and said, well, the best evidence of that wasn't published until the 20th century. And Scott said, no, I don't think that's the case. I think he said something in 1876. And this conversation between Scott and me led to Scott going on newspapers.com and searching for Frederick Douglass, Lincoln Park, Lincoln statue. And he found this public letter that that Douglas wrote to the editor of the National Republican in a newspaper in Washington, D.C., right after the dedication, where Douglas expressed some misgivings about the pose of the statue. And then he said, there is room in Lincoln Park for more than one monument. And he said, the entire story of emancipation can't be told in one statue. And Douglas called for more statues to go up into Lincoln Park. And this was just an incredible find. The letter hadn't been seen for 134 years. Yeah. And so we wrote about it in Smithsonian. And, you know, our our thought was if people had listened to Frederick Douglass in 1876 about putting up more monuments, telling a fuller story of emancipation, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we were then. Yeah. And I remember uh, sort of the press frenzy around that as well. I mean, you guys got really almost global attention at the time, I remember. So it was a very timely find and um, brought a lot of attention to an important issue. It was an, it was an incredible experience. Yeah. I bet, yeah. And, you know, Frederick Douglass was certainly the center of that issue, uh, plays a big role in this book of yours. Um, I he, to, to me, he's, first of all, an interesting, fascinating character on his own right. Um, I'm glad he seems to get getting more and more attention as years go on. But what can we learn about Lincoln, the president, Lincoln, the man, through uh, Frederick Douglass and th those, two those two interactions? When I teach my classes and I'm teaching Lincoln, I use a lot of Lincoln documents, and then I often pair them with Frederick Douglass documents. So when we look at Lincoln's election and his inauguration, 1860-61, I often have my students read some of the editorials that Douglas wrote at that time, where Douglas calls Lincoln the South's greatest slave hound and abolitionism's worst enemy. From Douglas's perspective, Lincoln was not going to be a friend towards African Americans. After this infamous meeting with the Black delegation in August of 1862, Douglas issues an editorial that is just scathing in its criticism of Lincoln. But then Douglas meets Lincoln. And the two men meet three times. And those meetings, I believe, transform the way that Douglas views Lincoln. So that by the time you get to the end of Lincoln's life, Douglas views Lincoln as a friend. And, you know, Douglas delivered the oration that dedicated that statue in Washington, D.C. in 1876. And I think that speech is one of the most misunderstood Douglas documents. Mm -hmm. A lot of people read the first half of the speech and they ignore the second half of the speech. 
In the first half, Douglas recounts all of his wartime criticisms of Lincoln as an abolitionist, all the ways that Lincoln disappointed African-Americans, how he was slow in emancipation, how he issued the Greeley letter saying he cared more about the Union, how he lectured the Black delegation, how he pushed for colonization, how he didn't enforce equal rights for Black soldiers. There's all these things that Douglas had criticized during the war. And Douglas rehashes those in the 1876 speech. But then Douglas pivots. And he essentially makes the argument that if Lincoln had done what Douglas wanted during the war, if he had acted more quickly, he would have lost that northern electorate that he needed to win the war. And Douglas essentially concedes that Lincoln's approach to emancipation and union had been the right one. And it's an it's an extraordinary speech. And so I think for people who are interested in Lincoln, reading him in conjunction with Douglas can make for a really enlightening experience. And, especially, you know, people love to talk about how Lincoln changed over time or Lincoln evolved over time or Lincoln grew over time as if Lincoln's the only person who ever changes his mind right. and he's wrong at one point, <laughs> exactly. and then he got it right. And you know what we all do. And Douglas is one of these guys who had a very strong view of Lincoln and it changed over time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you you uh, really do a good job in this book of uh, documenting as many Black interactions at the White House as you can. Which of those stood out to you or, or might surprise readers the most when they pick up the book? There are a lot. I mean, uncovering these stories in the newspapers and in letters was a really incredible experience. And just seeing how many African-American men and women met with Abraham Lincoln during the war. But one that I really am touched by involves a woman named Caroline Johnson. She was a free woman of color in Philadelphia. She was working as a nurse before earlier in the war, but she was also an artist. And she wanted to make a gift to present to Lincoln as out of gratitude for what he had done with emancipation. And so she made a beautiful wax fruit display that cost her $150 to make. It had a retail value of $350. And she was able to present it to Lincoln in the library of the White House. Now, the library is that oval room on the second story of the White House that overlooks the Washington Monument. And it might not seem like a really big deal. Oh, you know, who cares? She presents it to him in the library. But the library was part of the private living space of the first family. This is where Lincoln would go to take a nap in the middle of the day, where he would play with his boys and their friends, where he would read the Bible in the morning before starting the business of the day. This is his private space. And I did a lot of searching for Black visitors to the White House before the Civil War, and I found very few and my hunch is that other than servants or slaves, African-Americans were not welcomed into the private living quarters of the first family. But now in April of 1864, Lincoln invites Caroline Johnson and her Black Baptist minister into the White House, into this private living space, the library. And they have a beautiful interaction where Lincoln is almost moved to tears as Caroline Johnson speaks to him, thanking him for emancipation. It's a really powerful moment. And I think it shows the racial transformation that took place in the White House during the war. Granted, it was short-lived after the Civil War, very quickly into the Johnson presidency and moving beyond African-Americans feel unwelcomed in the White House. 
but here's a moment where Lincoln is very welcoming. And I think it's exemplary of how he treated most Black people who came to the White House to meet with him. That's a great story. And there are really so many um, in the book. And I enjoyed reading it um, over the past week. And there are a lot. That one just certainly stood out. Another one I really enjoyed reading um, and want to highlight for listeners is the Sojourner Truth visit to the White House in 1864. Could you touch upon that and and your perspective on, on Truth's relationship with Lincoln as well? Sure. That's a really controversial one. It, Sojourner Truth came to the White House October 29th, 1864. And Historians over the years have interpreted it in various ways, but it seems like the scholarly consensus is that Truth was not treated very kindly by Lincoln, that he was condescending and demeaning towards her, that he said things like, I didn't really want to free the slaves, and that he just was not very welcoming to her. Now, the reason that historians have taken that or had that interpretation is that they've relied on a memoir that was written by a woman named Lucy Coleman. Lucy Coleman was an abolitionist who did not like Abraham Lincoln at all. And she went to the White House that day with Sojourner Truth. And she wrote about it in the 1890s in her memoir. And in that memoir, she depicts Lincoln in a very unflattering light. She attributes Lincoln, she attributes words to Lincoln that he never would have said in October of 1864, like, I don't want to free the slaves. And if I didn't have to do it, I wouldn't. And what I think she was doing is she was remembering the Greeley letter from August of 1862 and then putting it into Lincoln's mouth in October of 1864. So a lot of historians rely on Lucy Coleman's 1890s memoir, but here's the thing. Within weeks of the meeting between Sojourner Truth and Lucy Coleman with Lincoln, Sojourner Truth dictated an account of what happened and Lucy Coleman wrote an account of what happened. Uh -huh. And in both of those accounts, Lincoln comes off very well. They depict Lincoln as being kind and cordial to Sojourner Truth, as welcoming her into the White House. Sojourner Truth says, I felt as if I was in the presence of a friend. And even Lucy Coleman, she admits that she doesn't like Lincoln. And she says in this earlier account, if I could vote, I wouldn't vote for Lincoln. But she says that Lincoln treated us kindly. And so the problem, I think, is that when historians rely on this this memoir from 30 years later, they're relying on something that is much less reliable. And what I try to do in the book is I show how if you rely on the sources from right after that moment in 1864 and speeches Sojourner Truth gave in the late 1860s talking about this, you see that Lincoln really welcomed her in and treated her very kindly. Well, I think this is yet another of the many examples of you doing correct historic research of looking at the full context, the full record, and really placing more often than not the most weight and emphasis on um, accounts that occurred close to time um, of when it was written down. I mean, certainly, you know, yeah, reflections or writings right after the visit I carry more weight than some 30 years later. So um, just good good work, and I think in some cases important correctives as well to the to the to the to the history. Um, you know, put it, want to put you on the spot a little bit here. One of my my passions, my focus is on Lincoln's youth in Indiana. And one of the things I find really interesting is his visit while he was in Indiana visiting, or not really visiting, but taking a flatboat trip uh, with a friend to New Orleans to, to take goods. And on that trip was attacked by uh, Black slaves. And, you know, I, I suspect he would have come into contact with Black Americans in Kentucky when he was very young. 
possibly in Troy, Indiana, on the river where there was a lot of uh, activities. But that's probably one of the early significant interactions he had with Black Americans, not a good one. Um, and yet he would go on to really become, you know, the Black American president that would free slaves. Um, where do you see his early Black interactions and, and how might have they have influenced uh, his, his view, if at all? Yeah, I think that's a great question. That moment is one that I always lecture on on the first day of my class to tell students about this interaction with the seven slaves in, I think it was near Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh -huh. where they attack him and his friend Alan Gentry and almost rob and kill them. I think that moment is extraordinary, in part because some of those seven men might have still been alive 30 years later and freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh -huh. But it, it does show you know, we'll never know Lincoln's earliest interactions with African-Americans. I mean, the documentary record from his early life is so sparse, but that one we can know with confidence happened. And then when Lincoln gets to New Orleans, he sees the slave trade right up close. He absolutely encountered it. And I think that those moments really begin to shape the way he thinks about slavery and the slave trade. Now, there are a lot of quotes that are attributed to Lincoln from that trip, you know, for many people, many years, it was said that he said when he saw the slave trade in New Orleans, someday I'm going to hit that thing and hit it hard. And there are problems with the sources for that. So we don't know if Lincoln really did say that or not. But I absolutely believe that that 1828 and then the 1831 flatboat trips down to New Orleans had a profound impact on how he viewed the world and how he viewed slavery in particular. Mm -hmm. Well, uh we have a lot of people that um, stand out as towering figures in the world of Lincoln scholarship, Burlingham, Holzer, Alan Gelzo, others that are, are very active and produce a lot of material. But I really view your work as uh, being some of the most productive and not just in volume, but also in quality. So I'm always excited to see um, how much you continue to work. And when you have new things out, we were talking uh, earlier before we were recording that um, you have some other books in the pipeline. So could you give us a, a, a preview of what's to come? Because I know you're always got something uh, coming next. Well, first, thank you for those very kind words. I have three books that are going to come out in 23. And so the first one is going to be an abridgment of Michael Burlingame's Green Monster. So when, when Michael signed his contract with Johns Hopkins University Press, he agreed to cut the 1.2 million word version down to a 300,000 word short version of the biography. It's still about 600 pages, but it's it's shorter. And he, at, he and Lou Lehrman asked me to do that. And so I spent about two years abridging down that, that biography of Lincoln. And that was an incredible experience for me. I learned so much reading through that and then deciding what to keep for an abridgment and what right. to cut. So that'll come out in early 2023. And then I'm going to be publishing an edited collection of essays with Brian Matthew Jordan with the University of Georgia Press. And this is a collection of essays on grave sites during the Civil War. And we brought together some of the leading scholars of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln, where each one picked a grave and wrote about it, what it meant to them and why it's meaningful. And we have about 120 or 130 illustrations to go in the book. It's going to be a gorgeous book. We've got David Blight, Alan Gelzo wrote about the, the Lee grave at Washington and Lee University. Um, 
Michelle Crowell wrote about Elizabeth Keckley's grave and how it became a subway station and was moved out to Maryland. We've got just a number of incredible Lincoln scholars who contributed to that. We're really excited about that one. And then next fall, I'm publishing a biography of a slave trader, a convicted slave trader named Appleton Oaksmith. Appleton Oaksmith has just one of these really remarkable 19th century lives. His mother was a prominent first wave feminist lecturer and writer. His dad was a prominent journalist in Maine. And he wound up getting involved in a number of important moments like the California gold rush, filibustering in Nicaragua and Cuban, Cuban liberation in the 1850s. When the Civil War came around, he got arrested for slave trading and he was convicted in Boston and imprisoned in a jail that is now part of a luxury hotel, actually, the Liberty wow. Hotel in Boston. And in September of 1862, he busted out of jail and made his way to Cuba, where he became a Confederate blockade runner. And I use Oaksmith's story to, as a lens to understand the lengths that the Lincoln administration went to destroy the transatlantic slave trade during the Civil War. All Lincoln scholars know Nathaniel Gordon, who was executed for slave trading in February of 1862, but very few, if any, know Appleton Oaksmith. And what I found was that Lincoln used many departments of the government to go after Oaksmith and to try to bring him to justice, even to the extent of violating international law in this incredible botched kidnapping attempt in Cuba, in Havana. So it's a really incredible story that has not been known until now, and I'm, I'm looking forward to bringing that one to light. And I think that Lincoln scholars will will find a lot in there of interest to them as well. You know, that they all sound like great projects. I know when I had a conversation recently with Michael Burlingham, he talked about the challenge of cutting down what we call the green monster is two volume history of Lincoln, because it was all like a baby to him and he couldn't bring himself to cut words out. So I think he needed to bring in an outside uh, expert like yourself to to really get the job done. So, uh, but that'll be good. I think um, it's, a, it's a much more digestible volume for a lot of folks yeah. who just want a single book to read. And that's days. exactly what happened. I would cut out a couple thousand words and then he would try to sneak them back in. <laughs> yeah. We'd go back and forth on what do we cut? What do we keep? But right. it, it was a great experience doing it. I, I can't tell you how much I learned. I bet. Yeah. What, what a great experience working with him so closely too. Well, um, Jonathan, I thank you so much for um, your time today. As, as a reminder, we have a house built by slaves, African-American visitors to the Lincoln White House uh, just out this year. And then uh, shortly before that, uh, really a companion piece I view anyway, to, to address you as my friend, African-Americans letters to Abraham Lincoln, available at your local bookstores on Amazon or uh, from the publishers, uh, Roman and Littlefield and the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, for those that stuck with us, uh, get you on a little secret here, we actually, Tape this podcast and unfortunately failed to hit record. So I really appreciate Jonathan uh, willing to do this a second time. And hopefully that doesn't stop you from coming back uh, to chat about your future books as well. We look forward to it. Um, as always, I, I love your scholarship, love your history, and hope you continue the um, really, really good output uh, that you always seem to have. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh -huh. Thank you for listening to Lincoln Log. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
And if you like this podcast, please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review. This helps other people find the show. 